And Docker does have a certain degree of level changes, but the one who has to do that the most is the goalie, mm. because the other players can't go down and stop the ball with their hand. As where softball, baseball, tennis, volleyball, back row players, they have to change levels constantly. And they have to be very stable and dynamic in those changes of direction. So the more we expose them to those types of things, I today still, even when I warm up my kids, we do these things called roll and reaches that I've been using for years. And that's changing levels. And some of the kids initially struggle with it, but they're getting better at it because we do it every day. That was Lee Taft. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online sports technology store that curates the best of in various elements of training, such as timing systems with the free lap timing system, training tools with things such as blood flow restriction training and the K-Box, athlete monitoring devices such as velocity-based training, force plates and the VO2 master, and much more. I choose sponsors for this show that I use their products personally. And I have been loving using blood flow restriction training this past year. The free lap timing system has been an absolute staple for me. I've really enjoyed using bar speed tracking and the K-Box. Those and other products in their store have been a really valuable part of not just my coaching journey, but also my journey as an athlete. They have as well an amazing blog on sports performance and are a top-notch company with great customer service. Be sure to check them out, and you can do that at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's great to have you here. In the world of athletic development, we have many facets of the equation. We have, of course, the sport itself, sports skills, coordination, the process of learning physical skills and abilities through physical education from youth to scholastic years into adulthood. We also have the strength and performance side. We have the physical strength, the range of motion and alignment, the pure power outputs. And with all these components, the more we can integrate them, the more understanding that we have of how does this fit into the grand scheme of things. If I'm the sport coach, understanding the physical raw abilities that come from a weight room setting is really beneficial. If I'm a strength coach, an athletic performance coach, Knowing how athletes move on the field, how they develop over time, knowing the art of motor learning, that helps me tremendously with looking at how what I do fits right into that athletic scope of play. When it comes to the integration of both sports skill and then strength and speed, one guest who I absolutely love having on is Lee Taft. Lee is one of the most highly respected sports speed coaches in the world. His methods come from wisdom accumulated not just in sports performance, but also in physical education, sport coaching, and decades of experience doing so. Lee has been a three-time guest on the podcast and a mentor to many high-level coaches. On the podcast today, he'll be detailing his process in terms of a learning continuum of sports skills, constraints, and then when to step in and connect the dots with what an athlete is missing. So, Lee will talk about the ability to use the game, play as a screen, and then how to know when to plug in specific speed work, specific needs that we can gain from more of the hardware side of things in the gym into sport. By understanding sport, which we'll talk about a lot on this show, 
we can really understand that fullness of an athlete's development. And the more we can integrate, I think the more effective we can be. I always enjoy talking to Lee, and I know you guys are going to love this show. Also, before we get started, be sure to check out the show notes. We reference a few things, some exercises, for example, through the course of this episode. And if you head to justflysports.com and the page associated with Lee's podcast here, you can see in more detail a lot of what we're talking about. All right, let's get to episode 331 with Lee Taft. Lee, it's great to have you back on the show, man. You know, I was going to ask you, you know, I was thinking of this and watching your videos and just talking to you before the show, but what do you do for, I guess I could say workout, but for sport, like what you, like play tennis, like, or basketball, like what's your, what is your activity these days after spending so many years in movement and sport and all that? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks, Joe, for having me. I always look forward to talking to you and uh, just kind of sharing ideas. So I appreciate you having me on, but yeah, you know, I, I, uh, it's funny. We, this is kind of a funny uh, story on how it happened, but you know, I love, I build mix around a little bit with basketball. I'm coaching basketball. So I'll, you know, play with the kids every now and again with my son. And, you know, we, we haven't played as much tennis as we were, but we obviously, I love, you know, playing tennis and, uh, but we just recently bought bikes again. We had bikes in the past and we moved and we kind of got rid of them and we just bought them. And the reason is, is we, you know, as we talked a little bit off camera, we went through a pretty big hurricane and a lot of destruction. Well, one of the where we live, one of the main bridges was taken out, a half of it. Well, the other half, there's still a little sidewalk. So to get to the grocery store, to get to even the school, to anything, if we drove, it took a long, long time because you literally had to go way around town and all these, it just took forever. And so we bought bikes and so we would ride a lot and we would go, we would put our backpacks on, go to the grocery store, fill our backpacks up, drive back, you know, and do stuff like that. So, so from athletically, I like to do stuff like that. You know, plus I mentioned playing basketball and tennis whenever possible. And of course, you know, this, where I am right now, this is kind of my little speed cave and I love doing stuff out here. I even do stuff with probably your listeners have heard of like reaction balls and z-balls, which is not a sport, but it's athletic and it's stuff I like to do because it's random it keeps me moving. It keeps me reacting and kind of moving my feet and stuff. And so, yeah, I try to do a lot of stuff like that. But because I have a son that's 14 and really active, you know, he keeps me active. And uh, we, we go out and play football a lot and different things like that. But yeah, it's been good. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was, I was, um, I've been playing a little bit or I should say I kind of had this intense realization that I just need to play more. I, I talk about it all the time and I love it. Like I'm wired for it. I, back when I was at Cal, I would always try to find, you know, someone to play like 21 basketball with or just something <laughs> whenever I could. And yeah. I, you know, I get back to Ohio and I'm like kind of looking at rec leagues or times or whatever. And finally, I got connected with a group that plays Ultimate Frisbee on Friday mornings. And it's just uh, been, it's only been a few weeks, but I'm like, this is so good. Like this is just yeah. like pure, you know, I, I talk about like outputs a lot and, and, you know, all the ways to get your training all lined up. But at the end of the day, like just having fun, being with a community and a group and being explosive and random, like you said, the D-ball, yep. like variable ways is just so, so crucial. And especially for me, yep. I think it is for everybody, but it's just been really great to get back to that. And so, yeah, thinking about that, mm -hmm. how to do that too on small scale, even with just little random things that that's, that that fun and variability is just so important, I feel like. It, it is. It's, and it's uh, for kids, it's great for us, but for kids, it's great because it you know develops the creative mind. You know, the solving, we always talk about that, but we don't actually allow them to do it. 
and, and to allow them to do it, you got to just get out of the way and let them go. And then they start to, they start to create and think and solve. And, and uh, you know, we have this, you ever go to like Dick's or sporting goods store and you can get the big, pretty big bucket of baseballs, you know, the big buckets there, you can buy those. Or you go to Home Depot, you get a big bucket. Well, we would always have one, my son and I, we'd put them out here and we'd put the bucket out somewhere and we'd grab a bunch of different kind of balls and we'd have to try to make it in the bucket. And, you know, like shooting baskets, but on this little bucket, but we would we would say, okay, you can only make it off two bounces. So one bounce doesn't count, straight in doesn't count. It's got to go two bounces. So you're figuring out, angle, like, how high to bounce it. So the second bounce has enough height that's going to make it in. And then we would figure you got to hit two walls and then make it. And so, like, a, a lot of the listeners are thinking, well, that's kind of crazy. I'm like, absolutely not. That's the goal. That's the stuff that creates the creative mind and problem solving that athletes use every time they play soccer, basketball, tennis, football, you know, whatever the sport is, they have to use problem solving to make a play. And what better way to do that than this free kind of, you know, sampling of skill set. And that's what we would do a lot. And that's how we end up creating athletes that have more than just power and speed and basic agility, they actually have a thought process and they have a creative mind to perceive and predict things. And that's really, that's our job at the end of the day. Yeah. Just even in coaching youth soccer on the you know five and six year olds, I see, I always am finding times to shut my mouth to make sure I keep my mouth shut. Cause I'll watch kids like, like literally figuring out defense as if it's zone defense in basketball. I can see them looking <laughs> towards the goal, looking towards the, and they're figuring it out. I'm like, all right, I'm just not yeah. going to say anything. I'm going to let them figure it out. Maybe they're not even in the world's greatest position, but they'll fit, you know, that's all, that's, that's right. part of their process right now. And I got to, got to respect that. So it's, um, yeah, yeah that, Absolutely. that creativity and yeah, I'll, I'll have to, you know, it's interesting too, to think about that with, yeah, just like a bucket, like a bucket and different ways to, to throw that and a spike ball and, and everything that yeah. goes there. We did one thing I did too, Joel, and I just mentioned, cause it, so all my my oldest daughter is 25. My youngest is 22, going to be you know 23 this year. But she's still got one more year of college basketball. And then with my son, who's 14, I did these these games with the kids when they were younger. We'd get in the garage or we'd go outside, and I'd give them a cone, you know, like a cone you sit down to do agility drills with. And I would throw them a tennis ball, and they had to catch it in the cone, and they got certain points for that. But we did all different ways. So like I might stand behind them throw it over their head, and then they're looking for it. So we're developing tracking skills. And then they had to catch it in the cone because the cone, which is nine inches, the ones we have, nine inches, that's nine inches longer than their arm. So their central nervous system has to figure out because the first few times they miss it because they're trying to catch it with where their hand would be. But no, you got another, you know, so many inches extended. And so we would catch it in and we'd give them point values and I would make them lay on their back and I'd bounce it and they'd see it come in. They'd have to catch it. And I'm telling you, Joe, they would keep me doing that for an hour. They just really? love the different stuff, but it developed great tracking skills and vision and moving their hand. So it helps with racket sports or catching games and stuff. So that's the, I'm, I keep saying this, but that's the stuff that creates the athlete beyond the athlete. Mm-hmm. And we got the fast, athlete, we got the combine athlete, right? who shows well in numbers. But then we got the athlete 
who thinks really quickly and really well and moves. And that's a different kind of athlete that I don't think we're developing as much as we used to when kids had more free play. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a big like topic I wanted to cover. And I've, you know, in the yeah. sense or in the time since we've last talked, one at least I've been on this word a little bit. I think Rafe Kelly might have got me onto it, but the idea of like atomizing or or I guess it's over compartmentalizing all, all the yeah. pieces of the yeah. process. Like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna get your skills, you're gonna be on this like you know, team or travel ball team. You know, we might talk about that a little bit today. And then you're going to get your speed here and then you're going to get this, your strength here. And it's like this like overserved athlete where it's not, you're never letting it all just become this, you know, this, this thing where you get it all in one shot or you're getting more pieces of it in one, I guess you could say more of a natural development. And so the question I'll have for you is, I I mean, and maybe things are just, you know, a little bit different now than they used to be. I know you talk about now versus the nineties, things are a lot different and but with that in mind and, and the wisdom you've gained over the years through, through seeing these changes, like what is the ideal to you in terms of if, if you could design the optimal environment for a child to grow up in through youth, middle school, high school, what would that look like? Because I think so often we get lost. We're just like, all right, all we yeah. see is the next team. All we see or all we see maybe is the athlete who comes into us looking for speed and that's all we're there right. to train them for, you know, like, but we... To see the big picture, what is your big picture? Like this would be the optimal uh, development for an athlete. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And before I go into that, I I think all the sports performance facilities and coaches, I think they're great if they have a great model, if they have a good model of development and they're understanding how to actually develop the holistic athlete. And, and, you know, so I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Obviously, I did it for years and years. Our facility, when we did it, we, you know, we really focused on kind of the hodgepodge of movement. You know, this is what this is real movement. I, you know, I can tell you to run from this cone to that cone to back, but you'll never do that in a mm-hmm. game. You, you know, in the game, it's dependent on, you know, the environment and the task, you know, but so I, I'm good with that. But I think what we need to start to get the more of. Um, really big. I love competition. People sometimes ah, competition. It makes no, no, no. Competition is a good thing because that's everything. Little toddlers compete for a toy, right? They're going to compete for a toy. We got, you know, seven-year-olds are going to compete on the playground for the swing set, you know, who gets on the swing, you know, so that's not a bad thing at all. We got to use that. But I think what we need to do is have competition. Like, let's say we want to play soccer or, or whatever game it is. It could be little basketball or, or maybe a little football. And we want to play, like, put them in situations where they have three on three, where they have small-sided games. And we just want to say to them, look, okay, here's a couple cones. There's your goal. Or maybe you have a goal set up. Or if you have a basketball goal, if you're playing that, you guys are going to play. If there's a disagreement, solve it real quick or restart the play. You know, just get that stuff out of the way and let them go. Let them play. Now, this is where my physical education background comes in. Because when you teach 30 kids, 35 kids, and they're young kids, if you talk to them all the time, you lose them really quick. So what I used to do was get them in a game really fast. And then I'd blow the whistle real quick. All right, everybody freeze. Okay, Joel just did this. What would be another way he could have did that to pass to his teammate that was over? Oh, I know. I did that. What would you do, Lee? Well, I would pass with my outside foot rather than the inside foot because I'm strong. Great. Let's do it. Ready? Go. And now everybody starts playing again. So the environment of playing is critical. But but if we can guide through instruction, 
to kind of help the kids understand the game and start to learn a little bit of the tactical part of the game and the physical part of the game. I think that's a wonderful model to use. I do that now. I'm currently a head boys basketball coach, and I do that. We get them into their stuff. We'll break down a little bit to warm up and footwork stuff and whatever. But we play, and then I blow the whistle. What should we have done if the ball went here? What's an option that we have, guys? And they'll let me know. Okay, good. Let's do that then. Boom, go. And I think that environment, if we compare that, Joel, to the current model of travel sports, of physical education, of high school sports, you know, young kids sports, where coaches are making kids have to listen and stop play try something else all the time. But what happens is the kids eventually figure that, well, I know he's going to stop me, so I'm probably not going to go that hard because he's going to stop me anyway. And so we've actually lost the flow of play. So my model would be let them play, find opportunities to teach and guide, and then let them play and repeat, you know, you know, rinse, <laughs> rinse and repeat. Just keep going like that. And then when we get opportunities during warm-ups, okay, let's let's see how we can run. Let's see how we can change directions. We can teach some basic stuff, a little thing. But let's not live there because that's not where they live in the game. We got to stay closer to the game if we want to develop, you know, pure sport movement or athletic movement. Yeah, and you, you mentioned uh, you playing games with your kids all the time. And, you know, I, I imagine that you know, as with the energy and the fun and the, the game-like nature you bring, their, with their journey, I was going to ask that because they played so much, this is what I'm trying to ask, because they were able to do so much play, what did you, what was your thoughts on them regarding like just more traditional speed drills, if that makes sense? Like, yeah. like them, yeah. them in more of a ideal environment, because you had much more say, obviously, because you were their, their dad, like yeah. how much speed, like how much did they actually work on like more the nitty gritty of, of all the speed stuff versus just playing? Right. Uh, very little. Um, we did it at times. If they joined a group, like sometimes they would join one of my training sessions and maybe we had, we were doing some kind of drill, maybe like a wicket or a, something to work on a mechanical thing that we wanted to drive. They would do that. But what I did a lot with them is while we were playing is if they were chasing after something. I used to play this game with them with a, a badminton and a birdie and I would I would hit hit it as high as far as I can, and they couldn't start chasing it until they saw me hit it. Then they'd go try to get it. Well, the great thing with that is it takes off like a rocket, but then it comes down slow. Yeah. So it gave them a chance. And then what I would do, Joel, is I'd say, like Jay, my oldest daughter, who who was kind of like me, very competitive, going after stuff. And I'd say, Jay, think about when you you know, run with your arms. I'd like to see your pinky go up by your shoulder on the first couple of steps. So think about it. The next thing you know, she's doing that. And now that's all I would say. I didn't talk anything else about how hard to run or this. I just gave her something that she started working on. And, and so those are the types of little cues that I would give them to help them accomplish catching the birdie or catching the ball or whatever. But it wasn't to them about a speed training session it was about playing a game, and I just help them with their speed or their change of direction by just giving them a couple little thoughts, and that's what they like. That's why they like it. And my oldest daughter, Jay, is actually coaching JV basketball right now in California. She's out there, and she she reached out to me the other day, and she goes, 
I can't believe I'm using the same stuff you used with me <laughs> years ago. And my coach, but she goes, the kids love it. We're having so much fun. And I said, that's, that's why we do it. You know, it's, if they have fun, they'll work for you and they'll come back the next day ready. Yeah. I, I remember all the way back to, I think it was either the first or second podcast we did. And I, I asked the question, something like, like if someone grew up in the perfect environment, they were just playing all the time, all sorts of variation that might just be like the ideal. And then you don't need to do as much of the, you know, may, like you said, maybe a little bit here and there, but they're athletic. Yeah. They get it. I had another question. I'll, I'll save it because it's more on like the natural gifted versus like the people who just yeah, need yeah. more coaching. But I love the idea of you got it in my head now, like off speed stuff, like a birdie, like it goes real fast and then it slows down or even a Frisbee is kind of like that a little bit, too. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm thinking because when I do speed sessions with kids, I try to get it into something that they can chase real fast. And I like a Frisbee yeah. because it almost does give you a little time, like if you were just working on something like you said, you have a little time to process that versus like a baseball. Yeah. I don't know if I have time to process, I just got to go get it, you know, like, yeah. so like, yeah, like off speed stuff. I mean, that, that seems like a really cool ground to, to infuse something that you might put in the athlete's yep. mind with like, okay, now go do it. That's right. So, you know, the ball drop drill, we've all done it for years. You hold a tennis ball, uh, you yeah. drop it, and got, you know, they start to go. Okay, so when I would do this as a phys ed teacher, especially with my kindergartners and first grade, second graders, I would use scarves. So you take a scarf. So when I would teach juggling, you get these juggling scarves. When you throw them up, they go up and then they flutter. And oh, they yeah. Down. So when I would do the ball drop concept with those kids, I'd have their partner that just hold your, you know, scarf as high as you want. They could do whatever they want with it. And I said, let it go. And your partner has to race and try to catch it before it hits the ground. Well, see, that's an example of gravity isn't affecting that scarf like it is a tennis ball is going to go boink, it's going to fall really fast. That scarf, the you know, yeah. the current is going to catch it. So the kids have a chance. And then what we would do is we would take a, like a little heavier face towel, you know, like one of those, something like that. And they would drop that. Still doesn't drop as fast as a tennis ball. Because it catches the air, it opens mm-hmm. up, but it's faster. So we started adding progressions to it, and then eventually they get to the ball. Then they got to catch the ball before it bounces twice. So that's a really good way to teach the kids how to work on acceleration. Okay, we're working acceleration, but we're doing it because they're chasing something, having fun. And then we can start to talk about, hey, what if you guys were to do this and you were to actually drive your arms a little bit harder like this and give them an example. Say, why don't you guys try that? See if it helps you get to the scarf quicker or to the ball and let them go, let them try it. And then, you know, it's like what we call summary feedback. Summary feedback is I say, Joel, what did you think? You know, what do you think you could have done? You're asking them and and you're kind of summarizing what is possible. And that's kind of how we would do that uh, with these athletes. But yeah, and and you had mentioned the Frisbee because, you know, in phys ed, we did a unit on Frisbee. And the, the Frisbee is great because if you can teach the kid how to let it catch air versus, you know, a nosedive no, yeah. or, a, <laughs> you know, those are when it comes down like a missile, you know, they, they start to learn how to be able to run and catch it or how to track it, you know, when it floats. And then, you know, they use massive acceleration speed and then they settle into a controlled speed to be able to gather and catch the Frisbee. So yeah, I love that idea. Yeah, I, you just got me thinking too. Uh, one of the most athletic things I think ever is actually 
this is a little bit of a rabbit trouble. Watching a dog catch a frisbee is just oh, like, yeah. oh, oh, yeah, it's amazing. Like it it's just pure athleticism, just all, like a rocket. And then they're like tracking it, you know, and jump up and bite it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, you're right. What you're saying too makes me just so value like all the things I did when I was a kid, like playing balloon volleyball. Like, you know, it's like I have neighbors who have their like seven-year-olds in volleyball with a regular volleyball and like no one can even hit it. I'm just like, how how nice is it to have a balloon that just like, you know, you hit it, it yep. goes quick, but then it floats down and you get to, you know, make your yep. decision to go get it and just things That's that move a little bit or slower. Or beach ball. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, just things yeah. that move slower that offer opportunities yep. or, you know, affordances or whatever you want to call it. And That's right. Yep. Yeah, I think there's just so much. Uh, yeah, whether you work with you know kids, it's intuitive. But even if you work with older athletes, it's just just to have a few of those things around. Have a frisbee around. Have a beach ball. Have like you said, even like something that can fall slower if you're doing like the typical tennis ball drop. Just something that to mix that up. It just makes sense. That's right. Yep. Yep. Sure does. And you watch them embrace it. You can see they all they light up and they start having fun with it. So yeah. I haven't asked you this yet, but because I, I, I've I've kind of. Um, gathered this from a few different coaches i actually i had a a lunch with alver meal um he's like my neighbor almost the other oh, like, it was like a year ago and he was talking about when he was growing up you know you'd mentioned like sports in the 90s versus now so this is like decades even before that yeah. like playing on yeah. like a dinged up old you know like a soccer field that's like one of the corners is like way lower there's all sorts of ruts all yeah. over the place like what are your thoughts on like the training environment i think you had mentioned i forget if it was on or off uh, air but like even have to do tryouts in like a half of an elementary school gym or like just like your thoughts on the environment that you're doing the skills in, be it nature where there's maybe a lot of different variations or just things like that with with developing athletes or established ones yeah yeah again the greatest athlete that and again this is my opinion but there has been some talk about this over the years so the greatest athletes have the ability to adapt and adjust to their to their situation, their environment. They adapt really, really well. And I think, again, kind of like Al was talking about, when I grew up, I grew up in the 70s. And we played a lot of sports that were just made up. You know, we, we had all different kind of sports that we just we made up. Or even if we played basketball, we naturally built in constraints of our own. And we used to play on these outdoor courts because I grew up in northern New York in the Adirondacks. So, you know, you'd get the frost and then you the court cement would buckle and so you'd start playing. And next thing you know, your ball's taking a right hand turn because you hit a you hit a bump on your on your outdoor courts. And we learned to play in environments that were not even close to ideal. But it was funny because back then we never gave it another thought. It was just what it was. You, you didn't question it. You didn't complain. In fact, nowadays, you know, if we don't have the absolute perfect net on the basketball, you know, everybody's mad. And I'm like, we didn't have nets half the time. The ball came through and you got hit in the face because you weren't expecting it. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, you get hit right in the face with the ball if you're under the basket. Got to pay attention. <laughs> you got to be, yeah, it was like you really had to be ready even if your own teammate made it. But the thing is, what happens is when you're in those type of environments, like when you're when you're out playing on slanted fields on, you know, uh, my driveway growing up was stone and slanted. So if I shot like a three pointer, it, it made the basket like 11 and a half feet high because my court went downhill. But, you know, what? that's what taught me. Touch. It taught me how to play. It taught me, you know, force production. It taught me all these things. 
And I used that to adapt to the, you know, when I got in the regular gym and an actual, a nice court and a nice basket and a nice ball and all that stuff. I think those adaptations that we go through in less than ideal environments, I think it's a piece of the puzzle that we often miss. And I'm a big fan of old time uh, training. Like I'll watch old, you know, Russian and Polish and Chinese old training that they would do and the old equipment, the old box horse and stuff like that, that they used to go through. And I think there's a tremendous value to that type of stuff where they had to figure things out and they still had to perform at a high level. So I think the pristine environment offers a disservice Mm -hmm. when sport gets ugly and it gets ugly, right? We get, it gets ugly at times. There's, you know, you're playing really bad or there's a hostile crowd or whatever. It's not ideal. Well, if you grew up in that environment and you were around it, you deal with it. It's just part of it. But, you know, I I think we have kids now that never get in that, but they have everything perfect. Mm -hmm. They never go outside. I've taken my basketball team outside because when the hurricane hit, we couldn't get in for a long time. So we went to outdoor court. Kids were shooting awful. I'm like, it's because you guys never learned to (laughs) play outside. I said, I never got on an indoor court until it was basketball season. The other seven months, we were outdoors on court. And that's how we learned to play. So, yeah, I I do. I think it's it's a lot of value having less than perfect environment. Yeah, 100%. I know. I remember you know, speaking of like the old school, the Russians and Chinese, it was, I think the Polish weightlifting team in like the seventies or something. It's, there's a Love video of them. Video. Yeah. Out in the, I'll have to put in the show notes. They're out in the woods, like doing basically like parkour and like, yep. just it's in the snow too, or something. In I think like snow, going over logs oh, yeah. and snow and ice and doing pushups on trees. And <laughs> it's so good. And it's almost yeah. like in addition to all the, you know, you could take in the motor learning. Okay. This is variable. This is, you know, problem solving, but it's also just. I think we lose like story sometimes too. It's like like the you watch like Rocky. There's something like visceral about training in a tough environment and figuring it out. And like you're out in nature and you you have to figure out how to use a log or whatever. It doesn't yep. have to be like that for every kid, you know. So, but like there's something that's also written in story that that also exists there that I think we miss as soon as we. It's like oh, everything's got to be perfect in this you know this court or even in the weight room. It's like I. I think a, a four-week block of training out in nature, you know, would be great for anybody. Uh, <laughs> so. I agree. I agree 100%. And it really does. And again, I think when the toughness comes, like the end of a game and, you know, the tough the tough guys and tough gals pull through, well, it's what they've been through. You know, they've been through tough times and tough training. and they didn't have, I'm telling my boys right now because – I, it might have been off camera when we first talked. I just found out this morning. Today is opening day for us. We This is the first day of tryouts, practice officially for Florida. And I didn't know where I was going to practice until about 20 minutes before you and I got on this call. I literally didn't know. And so my AD said, well, the lower campus has half of a gym. So we have half of a small elementary gym with one basket. And I got 20-something boys. And so I reached out to the boys and I said, okay, we finally know where we're going to be. This is where it is, 6 to 7.30 tonight. And I said, come with no excuses. Okay, Leave your excuses at the door. We're here to work out and play and practice and get better. The environment is what it is. We're not going to make excuses. And I said, I can promise you guys, we're going to have a chip on our shoulder when the season actually starts because no one else that we're playing 
has had to deal with what we've had to do. And it's funny, all the boys, it's kind of like this group me platform where you can portal, where you can talk to your team. And they all like loved it. Love, 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 love. Because they're all like, yeah, you know, this is kind of, and you brought up Rocky, but it's kind of like that. I'm like, we're going into this small little gym that's tile floor. It's not even a real gym. It's the cafeteria. And I said, hey, it is what it is. We're going to get better today. And by tomorrow, we'll be better than we were, you know, the day before. So it's just that environment. I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my story with our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. Several years ago, I had strongman and mental training expert Logan Christopher on the show. And in the interview, I realized that Logan, in addition to deadlifting over 500 pounds and ripping phone books in half, also was the founder of an herbalism company. Long story short, I ended up ordering the Phoenix Formula, one of their flagship products. And in taking that, I noticed increased energy and a decreased reliance on coffee, which honestly, I was kind of expecting that. But what I didn't expect is after a few weeks, I noticed my weight room numbers had increased substantially. And the Phoenix formula also led me to getting shiliagit resin, which is found in the Phoenix formula and recommended by a lot of strength coaches, as well as other Lost Empire Herbs products. I've been using Lost Empire Herbs ever since, and I have sponsors of the show that I believe in, that I use, and that I want to share with you. So if you want to check them out, head to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly for 15% off my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products. You get a 365-day money-back guarantee. I really enjoy having Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show, and I hope you get a chance to check out what they have to offer. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, that's it's those stories are always so cool. I'm I'm excited to see too how your team does throughout the year, and it, you know, it's like the more you the more you overcome early on, if you have to overcome something, I think that's always really powerful. Versus. It's like, especially too, with like the, you know, the university like mentality, everyone's got to one up the other end with recruiting. Here's a better, nicer weight room. Here's better, nicer facilities and, you know, this and that. And I I don't know. I mean, on the high level of things, you know, these athletes are already pretty established and whatever, but it it does make you think, well, what if, you know, one year, like you're, (laughs) you're at one of these big schools and like, you know, you're, you didn't have access to this field and you had to practice, you know, and, and, but no one had a bad attitude about it. No one was like, oh, you know, like. And yeah. I, I will say too, even being at Cal, that does make me think is Cal has an amazing swim team. Like, I mean, they're, you know, always yeah. at the top of the NCAAs, they have Olympians and you go to like their pool versus like Stanford's across the bay. Cal's yeah. is so dingy compared to, I mean, it's like literally <laughs> like, it looks like, I mean, it's still nice. I mean, I, I, high school sure. would be like, oh, this is nice. But compared to Stanford or some of these other like nice D1 schools, it's really not that yeah. nice. And it's, but it's almost like it, that, that fuels you. Cause it's like, we don't need this nice know. you know super nice thing let's let's just get it done and yeah, yeah. did you see the 60 minutes on Deion sanders i didn't know yeah Kat said it's you know 60 minutes they have multiple little episodes and his was one it was probably 10 minutes or 13 minutes something like that but i mean they showed him having to take a, a bath in the pool because the, the water was down and they have their weight room is off just nothing but he's bringing in top recruits and he's just the same mentality. He's like, hey, we're here to play. We don't care about this. We don't care about that. We're as good as anybody else. And, you know, his first year where they lose two games, and this year I think they're undefeated. Oh, it's so awesome. They're just going in, and, you know, and he's got that mentality of, hey, we're just kind of that Rocky mentality. Just doesn't matter. When game day comes, nobody cares, right? So they'll go and play. But, yeah, they have really poor facilities for, you know, Division One, but because of, you know, HBCU, you know, they just don't have the money 
So he's trying to change that, but there's that little edge to it. So yeah, almost like you don't want to change it too much. You don't want to get yeah. too comfortable, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. I think it was Daniel Coyle. It was like the little book of talent. It was talking about yeah. the Spartan. If it's Spartan, it's just bare bones. It like it communicates to you that you haven't made it yet. You know, like right, if it's right. so nice, it's like, oh, yeah, I made it. This is cool. Like if there's always <laughs> something that says you haven't made it yet, like you got to overcome this. There's that thing in your head. You know, I've I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that multiple times. I'll have to go check out that Deion Sanders uh, document yeah, as well. Yeah, pretty awesome. good. Pretty good. I love it. Okay, so transitioning just um, just a little bit. As you know, I, I asked you this before on a recent podcast, but I'd like to expand it a little bit. And I think you've, you've been chatting about it already, but basically when would you choose? I mean, it sounds like typically the go-to would be, would be a game, something to compete in, something that the athletes will problem solve. But a few primers on, and like you said, you might blow the whistle and okay, and, and then stop uh, briefly. Right. But just a little bit more on when you use games versus when you'd use or, or games or constraints versus actually like, get into the nitty gritty of coaching. Yeah. Just some general primers: what groups, what types of athletes? How does yeah. that break down for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think if we if we understand learning, that helps. So for me. I, I want the younger kids to have as much problem solving and figuring out and just sampling of instruction versus uh, a little bit more instruction when the athletes get a little bit older and they start to get higher uh, grade, you know, for lack of better word, on their performances. So with the younger kids, I, I like to let them go, let them play, let them develop this diversity of movement, and problem solving and all these things. And so I'm going to limit how much instruction I give those kids simply because a lot of them don't have the cognitive levels to understand the current instruction model that's out there, which is often a little bit too beefy for these kids. You know what I mean? It just That's why I think, you know, what helped me was having a physical education background where you kind of learn, you know, the younger kids and how to talk to them and all. Now, once they start to get more competitive, in other words, they're playing on state-sanctioned teams, like high school team or even a middle school team that plays a pretty competitive. Now, we, we, we never, I don't care what level, even professional, I never want to take away the play-like instruction where they play, we let them try to problem solve. If we continuously see the same, maybe low-functioning movement or patterns or play decisions. Okay, then we can start to dive in a little bit, but we can start to set up scenarios for them. We can give them more scenarios, like you mentioned, constraint, where the constraint leads my instruction. So without me saying a lot, I'm going to get what I want anyway, because the constraint makes it happen. Uh, That's why we use constraints. Uh, but the athletes just are still playing. You know, they're not, they just know maybe they can't go to that side of the field or that side of the court because of a constraint. We start to give that a little bit more. So now, Joel, let's say we're watching this team play and it's pretty competitive. And the missing link is some kind of quickness component or speed component. Or maybe maybe we recognize a lack of strength. Now we get a little bit more into the nitty gritty because if, you and I have the tools to be able to solve those problems for those kids, meaning a little bit more strict speed training program or a change of direction program or an agility program or a strength program. 
I think it's not doing our jobs not to access that skill set that we have. And we want to make it clear to the athletes doing this because in context of the game, you struggled on the 50-50 ball. You're always a step behind, and that's okay. Now we're going to put in some speed training. Every training session, we're going to put some things in that are going to help promote you winning 50-50 balls or you getting to tipped balls in volleyball because you're not strong enough to push off or whatever. So I think that's when it goes. So if we think intuitively as people, that doesn't make a lot of sense for the little kids. I'm not going to do a lot of that anyway. I'm, mm. I'm fine with them because there's no, no harm, no foul. Who cares if they're not that good yet? That, that doesn't really matter. But when you start to get like, I coach a varsity team, which is sanctioned by the state. In other words, we'll get a ranking or, or uh, you know, we're going to compete for sectionals, regionals, districts, all that stuff. Well, then you got to, you know, you got to, oh, you owe it to the kids to give the best opportunities you can. So I think that dictates a lot of it. You know what I mean? That's how I look at it. But the funny thing is, I never get away from the play. Because mm-hmm. the play is my assessment. That's what I'm really seeing because the kids are no longer doing what I told them to do. They're doing what comes to them. And that lets me say, okay, Joel doesn't like to plant on his left leg. He likes to go on his right leg all the time. He always turns, you know. So now I can put in some correctives to help you with that. And uh, But it gives you contact. So, yeah, so that's kind of how I would speak that. I love that. It's just, it's so simple. It just, it always goes back to play. And I just think yeah. that's where we live in such an atomized world where it's like, oh, just get my kid faster. Well, what does it mean? Do you want them to run faster straight line? And that's awesome. I mean, I I love the process of evolution. And I mentioned to you, this to you before we started recording is I love speed just because it, it's hard. It's not, yeah. it is probably the hardest ability to improve. It is not, it is not that hard to improve strength right away with kids. You know, just right. keep putting more weight on the bar. That's, or not kid, but once athletes are ready to lift weights, Anyone, it's not yeah. hard to improve strength. And, but speed is hard. And that's why it's just intrinsically rewarding to me because of that. But it's, if I have athletes and then as I've started to now coach youth sports, you just see it's, it's just all related to the perception and the ball and the skill and what happens in the, the sport itself. And being fast is nice. And early on, you can use your speed as a weapon, but then eventually everyone else starts to catch up to you a little more with that game speed. And you have to relate it to how you play in some way, shape or form. And it, I think too, a lot of kids it probably is more meaningful to them than too. I mean, they do like getting faster. You, you roll out the timing system and they want to keep going. I want to beat my time it, because it's a game. It's a gamification, but it seems like it would be, you know, just that, that system of, of play. If I don't seeing what I want here, but let's get a constraint. I don't still don't have to coach you. It's still play. And then right. finally, okay. Yeah. This person is having some issues here with this. Let's now isolate this. And, but it's always related back. I, I just yeah. love that way of looking at it. That to me is so yeah such an intuitive model. Yeah, I'll give it I'll give an example. So the other day we were doing a drill in basketball and one of our principles as we play is we try to get into the paint. Like we try to get a touch in the paint with the ball because if we can get in, usually things open up on the outside or if people don't come in and help, we we, we got a layup or we got a score. And to help my team understand it, I put less defenders So we actually went four on three. So now when they got in the paint, there was always someone open. And then they started to get the rhythm of we penetrate to score, but if we're denied, we're looking for that open person. And it it sped up their learning. And then when I went back to four on four, 
they got it. They started to get it. They started to get the concept of, of let's get paint touches. And then what happened is the defense started to kind of stay out on their man. And then we started to finish layups. I said, there you go. Now you're reading it. And it, it was nothing more than me just giving them the opportunity to see what's possible by the constraint of less defenders, more offense players. Let them feel it. Let them see it. And then it made sense when they went four on four. It, it, so that's an example of it was still play. It wasn't over instruction. It was just this is our this is one of our goals as we try to get in the paint as much as we can because it opens up easy shots or open three pointer. And that you know, so that's an example of using a constraint to make it easier, but through play. Yeah. Yeah, and the more I coach, I'm sure these, like sport, these are going to be sticking with me as well. And then the higher level I get and the more the, those those um, sub-constraints of the sport itself yeah, I'll yeah. be using. You know, for people too, on maybe the flip side on on some level, people who only work in a weight room setting or, or not the sport coaching, I am curious, you mentioned you, observing them, them play is the assessment. And so... For someone either who is a sport coach or a, a sports performance coach, obviously, like there's a lot of complexity with the movement. And I know you've talked about the different, like there's like the linking steps and, and, and these different yeah. sub uh, movements. But if you were to distill down some of the key movements you're looking for that would tell me, okay, we're playing a game or maybe I have a group and let's just say this is a very general thing. But they're playing a warm up game of soccer before we go yeah. train or lift. And yeah. I'm watching them play this warm up game of soccer. What are some key things that you're looking for within that game that might tell you, hey, this guy or girl uh, could use some more isolated work here? Thoughts on that? And that's the ultimate assessment, right? Watch them, observe, notice. And what I think helps us as performance coaches is, and this is why I've always talked, the more models we have in our mind as to what we would like to see movement look like, the easier it is for us to identify when something's not right. Because, for example, if we have a model of what it's like to change levels, maybe I'm going from, I'm running forward, and I have to do kind of a lunge to get lower to pick up a ball on the ground, right? Maybe a baseball or softball's on the ground, and I got to pick it up, or a football's on the ground, I got to pick it up, bend down. And I notice that athlete really struggles to actually use their dorsiflexion, knee flexion, and hip flexion to get down. They almost go stiff-legged and RDL it to get down there because they can't, they can't get there. Well, that's not the model that I would like to see of changing levels on a, on a, a offset or a split stance position. That's not what I would want to see. So that helps me. So now maybe we're going to work on that. We're going to test the mobility. We're going to see what strength is like. Or maybe there's pain. Maybe they're doing that because they're, they're they have tendonitis in their knee, and it's like, oh, I don't want to bend my knee. I'd rather bend over at my low back, you know, and 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 do it that way. So that's an example. When I see athletes change directions, and they have where they could have just stuck their foot in the ground and pushed off that one plant, they take multiple plants, and I notice that every time they go to change directions, they're kind of like what I like to call swaying. So like a tree sways kind of over its base, its trunk. Well, if the shoulders sway outside that foot plant, it's really hard to get a quick change of direction out of that. So, okay, there's a really good kind of a, 
assessment for me. Maybe the athlete lacks some internal rotation at the hip. So they kind of buckle and they, they get it by side flexing through the spine. Or maybe they're unable to get the foot wide enough because maybe they have a restriction or they just haven't done it enough times. It's just a pattern that they've developed a bad pattern. And now we got to work on that. So if, Joel, if we look at the models that we want to see, and if you gave a perfect example, warming up for a workout with a little bit of soccer, you know, and go play because soccer is different than most sports because you move your body in position to make a play with your feet. As with most sports, you move, make a play with your hands mm. because we're catching or we're shooting or throwing or whatever. And so now we get to see how stable are they? You know, how, you know, can they stand on one leg and reap? Or can they follow through across their body with a kick and have adequate range of motion? So that really gets to tell us a lot that we now can take to the weight room or the, you know, the speed portion and, and work on some correctives, correctives to help those patterns. Yeah, I like what you mentioned with soccer too. I know you've mentioned that in the past podcast. Like anyone who's not a soccer player, like soccer is amazing. And I hadn't put two and two together with not being able to use your hands until Adarian Barr had mentioned on the last podcast, like there's two different types of jumpers. You got um, athletes who are more lower body jumpers and then the more chest jumpers, like a volleyball player. They really like get that extra bit out of their chest and shoulders right at the end, like really rising those up to raise their center of mass right before their toes leave the ground. And that was like a kind of a mind blown moment for me because I was like, yeah, I'm all chest jumper. And I, but, but when I play, uh, and I know everyone gets this with, with sport, like you can jump higher when you use sport as a warm up versus going, you know, I'm just gonna do some skips and whatever, like sport is the great warm up. But I also think of it like I, even when I have played like racquetball, it's an amazing warm up for me. And I think about, and there's reaching there, but it's all stuff that's like, it doesn't let me use that kind of chest jumper cheat. It puts me in the ground. And it makes it lower body oriented and I have to, you know, it like really like dials into that as I'm moving all over the place. And so that it just kind of stuck that in my head there with soccer. Another benefit because because I'm so and I have long arms too. I use that to my advantage for sport, yeah, like yeah. super reachy. And it's nice to yeah, the constraint that takes all that away and just dials it into what's happening from the shoulders down or the, you know, exactly. the chest down. Yeah, I've always said soccer is a great, great sport for young kids to play because because of the footwork demands you know the you you can't get lazy you've got to get well you can be lazy but when you're around the ball you got to move your feet your feet have to be in position to to play because it's not a hand thing you know it's not bending over at your waist to get the ball you got to use your your feet yeah i would imagine that athletes you work with who played more soccer early on probably need less isolation than athletes who did not who maybe grew up just playing you know i don't know whatever sport it was they probably I imagine there's probably some sort of like correlation, you know, the more soccer yeah. you played, the less I need to work with you later on or something like that. Yep. Yep. Without a doubt. It's just, it's, uh, it, it's, it's one of those sports that drives that athletic power and elasticity and that quickness and that ability that we would have to formulate in a training session. They get it anyway. They get it all the time. So yeah. That, and just look at their legs. You know, you look at a soccer player, not that basketball players don't, but you get some there is, but you don't usually see like skinny legs on a mm-hmm. soccer player. No. They're usually kind of like thick trunk, right? They just got these thick quads and and their knees are, you know, they got the muscle lower around the knee, but that's what they do the whole time. You know, that's it's a different sport. Yeah, it's like so often we're like, oh, well, this player doesn't have enough leg muscle. Let's do squats. And squats are great. You know, squats yeah. are amazing. But it's like, well, if I could get that, 
by either they just play more soccer now and again that's not at that point you know if you just play for a few warm-up games it's not going to overhaul your leg muscles it's like these people have been playing their whole life but you grow up playing soccer maybe you play it till you're 12 13 and and then you transition like that would be like a big because it's like built in it's like the chest jumper example it's like built in the system i can't use that upper body constraint i have to really dial in on the legs and the footwork and that's going to help speed that development forward so complement a squat program too Certainly, Lee, when you were talking about the soccer, so three things I gathered, like if I was watching soccer, you you mentioned like level change. I know Ty Terrell, uh, who I know you've mentored, uh, mentioned that, like the ability to level change, like the elevator, you know, Uh, then like, like extra steps. And so basically people who are like, you know, too many like plink, plink, plinks, and they can't make hard cuts. And then people whose shoulders sway to the outside excessively. Would you say, you know, you'd mentioned... And I, I think this is a question I had, but kind of like hardware versus software, you know, like level change. I imagine that's something that's more like a hardware thing. Like you need to learn to squat. <laughs> like I can't just tell you to do to, hey, just play with your hips lower. Like what, or what's your take on some of that, like hardware versus software? Like I'm, I'm assuming you just probably would attack that from both directions. Here's sure. the gym. And can you expand on that though? If like someone yeah. can't like level change or shift and how you hit it um, multi-directionally. Right, right. And and again, let's go back to the the task and the environment that these kids get exposure exposure with. And that's why I'm so big on sampling of sport and the difference of sports. So we were just talking a lot about soccer. And soccer does have a certain degree of level changes, but the one who has to do that the most is the goalie. Mm. Because the other players can't go down and stop the ball with their hand. As where softball baseball, tennis, volleyball, back row players, they have to change levels constantly. And they have to be very stable and dynamic in those changes of directions. So the more we expose them to those types of things, I today still, even when I warm up my kids, we do these things called roll and reaches that I've been using for years. And that's changing levels. And some of the kids initially struggle with it, but they're getting better at it because we do it every day. And the ability to change levels is dependent on a couple things. One of them is our active ability to access mobility. Can I get into my ankles? You know, can I pronate? Because, you know, people are afraid of pronation, but pronation is a loading parameter. That's, that's, that's why it's there. That's why I have an arch that's mobile. Can we get into our hip? And we know our knee has the mobility to get the levels we want. It's just, is it healthy enough? You know, does it have pain? But can we get there with our hip? And a lot of times with the hip, it's not just the flexion extension. It's can we access internal and external rotation to be able to sit down and still maintain maybe an upright posture and, and change levels that way. So by having kids sample these different sports and different activities and different warm-up protocols of, that require change of direction, it makes our job a lot easier when we try to get into the weight room or, like you said, dealing with hardware or software where we can, one of them is more malleable than the other. One of them is kind of, you know, it's kind of tough to change. But if we can get them in the weight room, build strength at these various levels, then I know let me give you an example. I was just talking to a coach a couple of weeks ago about this. So when I do jump landing, let's say we're doing a shock type of a jump or a depth jump landing, which for the listeners, we're coming off something, a box or a step, and we land. I have three levels that I usually make my athletes be able to land in. So either high, medium, or low. 
below is they're going to land down near 90 degrees. Okay, they're going to try to get below 45 degrees in that range. But the thing is, they have to land there, not yield to there. So it would be like doing a cannonball in the water. You're tucked, and when you hit the water, you're already tucked. So when my athletes drop off, they have to tuck their knees up, land in that position. So when they hit the ground, they're already at that 45 or below. And then we have the medium, and then we have the high. And can they develop that ability to stabilize those level changes quickly? But I'm putting them at the level. I'm not allowing them to change level. But because they can control that deeper landing, I know they can change levels and get there and hold it because that's easier. That's an easier thing. So that's an example of what I would do in the weight room or in our training facility to help kids be able to establish that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I know I'm a big fan of the low squat foot jumps. Like they're basically like um, where you're sitting in a chair, like 90 degrees, not sitting in a chair exactly, but legs are yeah. at 90, hips are at 90, and you're just doing little hops up and down in that kind of yeah. lower position. and. Athletes, yeah, those I'm, are fun, by the way. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I, I am such a fan of that one. Like that's become a huge staple for me. I mean, it was on my radar before, but every year it just grows on me. And I watch athletes who are not great at level changing and they're always horrible. There's always something in the chain that's like screwing them up on that one. I'll have to like let them hold on a bench or, you know, put them, uh, let them have bands that's hold them up or something. Or I'm like yeah. looking at their feet and I'm like, what is, you're not pronating at all. Like, I'm like, what is going on here? You know? So that's, um, yeah, that's just been a huge one for me. I was going to ask you too about um, the roll and reaches. Can you describe that? Uh, you'd mentioned you did, yeah. that, did that a lot. How does that work? Yeah, so we, we with my basketball team, we do it with a basketball. But typically when I'm training athletes, we do it with a medicine ball. So imagine widening your feet, get them really wide, much wider than your shoulders. Now take a ball and put it down right below your center, right on the ground, right between your feet. And take your right hand and you're going to roll it all the way to the outside of your left foot. And I'm going to take my right hand and reach across my body. So it's actually connecting my mm. lap all the way to the opposite side. And then we roll it back, and it crosses my other side. Then my left hand goes and gets it, pulls it back. So we're we're gliding side to side. So we have parameters. For, and if I'm dealing with, like, really tall athletes, this changes. But we have six feet, seven feet, and eight feet. Six feet is we're doing what we call a closed technique. So my feet are straight ahead. Okay, so they're perpendicular to the way the ball is rolled. The open, which would be seven feet, is when I roll it this way, Joel, I open my foot that way and I reach across, but now my kneecap is pointing that way too. And I roll, then I open the other side. And then the eight foot is the cross step. So if I roll it to my right, my right foot follows it and, it, and I open up and I cross over and then my right leg ends up reaching way out with my right arm. We roll it back. We kind of do a little skip step and we do it on the other side. Tremendous mobility, keeps them low. If I'm doing it for a warm-up, our volume's kind of low, not real hard. But if I'm trying to get a metabolic effect with people and we train this, we might go with like a 10, 20-pound medicine ball. And we'll go for like 60 seconds, you know, of doing that. And then they rest. And then we'll come back and we do it again. And now it becomes a truly metabolic workout. But the, the dynamic demands of it, especially for the adductors early on in the groin, and then eventually the hamstrings and the back as we start opening up because we're working that fascial system is really, really good. And you don't need anything more than a ball. Just, that's why we just use the basketball with our kids. 
Yeah. Do you now? Do you use that? I, I could see that you know, being a, a gym warm up, but also like before practice. Like, do you use that with stuff like that with your basketball team before their their yep. practice? Exactly. So we get the ball, and you know how you do the ball stuff, oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. warming up. Well, we start high. This is changing levels, and we get lower. We wrap around our knees, and then we go to the free throw rolls. Put it on the ground because this is the lowest they're going to get. Now they got to get down, and and I'll tell you, some of these teenage boys. They need this bad because they're just so tight, and especially the kids in a growth spurt. They're so tight. And so it's, it's gentle, but it's challenging. It's challenging for them. So it's a really, really good exercise. And we have multiple angles you can do it at. There's many different well, – I'll show you sometime. There's many different ways you can do it. But for now, we just do it across our body and reach the opposite hand. So that lat and that fascial loop is connecting with my, my opposite leg and – and all the way right down to the outside part of that ankle. Yeah, I know making things play-based too. I, I just mentioned this on the uh, last podcast with Rhett Larson, how Corey Schlesinger would do like a, a, like if someone was doing an isometric lunge hold, which is you know, kind of difficult, we'll let the player yeah. have a ball and dribble it. Like it keeps them in the process. And when we can add, like you said, always going back to play. Like to me, yep. it seems like it could be, I don't know if you, you know, got the goniometer out and measure how much range of motion improvement, but honestly, I feel like it would be better. It's more effective if they get to have a ball while they're doing it. And it's like, there's yep. still this play like element versus you're, you know, you're stretching. I'm like shaking my finger. I feel like I'd say like, you're stretching, you're doing mobility. It's like, Hey, here's the ball. Let's increase your, you know, just like you said, gently working into that. To yeah, me, it seems right. like. And it, doing the dribbling and stuff, that, that's perturbation. Yeah. The perturbations we know work. And if, I don't know if you can see. But in the corner here, I have a tramp. So there it is. Yeah, right mini there. tramp, yeah. I, you got the mini tramp, and that's what we do. We'll have the kids in a an ISO lunge, and they test pass. Yeah. And, you know, and I'll tell them, oh, you got to give me 50 reps. And they go, blah, 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 as fast as they can to get it done. But they're holding that position <laughs> the whole time, and that's what it is. So, yeah. It becomes a game because they want to get the 50 done as fast they can so they can get out of it. Unless you want to be in it for three minutes and it's nice and slow, nice and easy. I don't have a, I'll have to use a basketball and a brick wall or something. I don't have a mini tramp, but I'll have to, I'll have to try something like that next time. I, I, Tuesdays and Fridays are using my ISO lunge and and sprint days. So I'll, I'll do the ball next time for the warm up on that one. Uh, Love it. Okay. Just a few more questions for you here, Lee. And so, you know, one thing you had mentioned was high velocity. And so, and I've been thinking about that where, where you talk about velocity, cleaning things up, like we talk about constraints and I, I do want to keep this relatively general. So maybe, you know, examples yeah. for either the sport coach or the sport coach, sport coach or the strength coach. Yeah. I, I see this with, with coaching you soccer. Like I'll see six-year-olds who they're not great at soccer yet like they don't have a lot of control but they're fast like they're always yeah. flying around the field and i remember as i'm coach i'm remembering what you're saying honestly just observing them i'm not trying to really change anything but like yeah. that kid's gonna start you know the the skill will catch up at some point like that they That's will right. get more control over time and so i'm starting to see it like as i coach more sports it's starting to make sense to me but i'm uh, within those constraints like and maybe you, you could use basketball as an example or Maybe it's um, a, a, just a game for warm-up or, or like a, a speed type thing. But I'm curious, uh, thoughts on speeding up the velocity through a constraint, just from like a practical example, because I'm kind of seeing it now with, with the kids. Yep. And I'm just curious how, how to yeah. do that in context of just everyday. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm telling you, I know this from personally because my friends and myself, when we grew up, we didn't have people like us. Like we didn't have performance coaches. You just... Mm-hmm. 
you play and you play and you had a coach for that sport and they, you know, you just play. But man, did we do competitions and chasing and stuff all the time. And we were all pretty fast. You know, we just, cause we did it all the time as young kids. And we talk about this window of opportunity of growth and development and central nervous system and all this stuff with, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is that at a young age, it just makes sense to get exposure to increasing limb movement, which increases ground contact variables, right? And it increases extension flexion of, of our movement. And we learn to pull our legs through faster as we get back. So all that stuff becomes dynamically developed. So one thing we'll do with our kids in basketball, for example, and I did this when I coached rec soccer, is I'm guarding you or in soccer, I'm marking you. And you're going to go around this cone or you're going to kick a goal, but you can't do it until you pass this cone, right? So that way you have to dribble a little bit. Well, this could be basketball. I start behind you, okay? And I can't go until you go. So what's happening here is you got this kind of nervous anxiety of this guy behind you trying <laughs> to catch you, but you, but you know you got to go fast. And even though your skills of, you know, dribbling the soccer ball or a basketball aren't that tuned yet. You're still working on a level of speed. Well, my job is to try to catch you and to disturb your shot. I can either knock the ball away or at least get in front of you so you don't have a clean shot. But we're both working on speed. You're working on speed despite having maybe low levels of ball control yet. But I'm not over concerned about that because that'll come in another. Mm -hmm. I can do that and I can work on ball control anytime. I can. But I want you to be fast and I want you to learn that in order to be fast, you have to have control of that ball. And because you're young, we have time. It's yeah. not, you're a college player. Okay, that's a little different story, right? Mm -hmm. But at a young age, that's okay. The, the skill will catch up. But the speed, we got to develop because speed is just unbelievable. And you know this, when you work with young kids, if there's somebody that's a lot faster, they dominate. They dominate. They just run by everybody. They get to everything and they're like little buzz saws all <laughs> over the place. And so we'll do activities like that all the time. We have another one where we do this when we're trying to get to the basket. I'm I'm on offense. I'm behind you. And you're facing the basket. I put the basketball right on your back. When I'm ready, I take it off and I drive either side. You don't know which way I'm going because you're looking straight ahead. You just feel the ball coming up. So let's say I come off and I take off to the left. I'm trying to get to the basket. Well, you don't know until you see me because I'm already got a head of steam. You got to try to cut me off. Again, those are those reactive acceleration speed components that we really want to develop. And we let the skill be part of it. But we're really after that quick reactive acceleration, that quick starting speed. So those are kind of activities that we like to do that challenge the speed, the movement of the athlete. Even if it makes them struggle, it gives them context as to why when we do a little bit more of a closed dribbling drill to get better, why we're doing it. Because you struggled in a live drill, so let's give you a chance to do it, and then we'll go right back to the live drill. Yeah, I love that. It's a, yeah, give me good ideas too for as I you know keep growing in my coaching and, and the age groups get older and older as well. And, you know, I was, I was just thinking about as you were talking, there was a drill. Someone sent me this on Instagram or something. It was like a, a basketball warm up where they played tag and it was like, but you had to, it was pass tag. So you had to pass 
just pass the ball. There was like one or two people running around you and you were chasing them by passing it to your teammate and you had to like tag them with the ball. So it was like, it was almost like less strategic than basketball in yep. a way. And there were not defenders. It was literally just high velocity, overspeed passing. <laughs> and exactly. I, I was like, how cool would that overspeed passing drill be if you were going to go then do, you know, a regular, like, you know, you just wanted to get your team passing faster. Okay, let's overspeed right. this. And now we'll go back into our set. And even I, you know, I was again, not everyone listening is dealing directly with sport coaching, but even in speed, I think you could do it. Like if I'm trying to teach or track and field, if I'm trying to teach someone a hurdle, I could start with like a low hurdle and have just race somebody who doesn't have hurdles next to them. And we'll just figure it out. You know, the form is going to get there. And I I would coach kids like that a hundred percent, like rather than, all right, we're going to do all the drills. And it's just like, no, just run as you're a sprinter. If you're a hurdler, like it's not like, you know, a second rate, a lot of times it becomes, oh, the people who weren't fast enough, you know, you just go hurdle and do all the drills, but at time in parkour, you know, like spending, watching kids do parkour, doing that myself, seeing how people learn to hurdle in nature and hurdle over trees, like just, just do it. Or you could even do it for like mini hurdles. Like one person runs, I had kids do this for youth track. One person runs over mini hurdles and they race someone who doesn't, or they, both race over mini hurdles or, or whatever. Like it's, and it's a race. It's not, I'm not sitting there telling them to do X, Y, Z. It's just go solve it over speed. And then, you know, it'll, it'll just kind of materialize or uh, Rhett Larson. I'm sure you've probably done this too, but like, like you said, with the medicine ball, like speed medicine ball, you 10 seconds, how many tosses are you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that where. Definitely. Yeah. Just that stuff is, that stuff is again, I goes back to one of the original questions. Competition is so important, even if it's not against an opponent. Yeah. It's just yourself. How many, you know, yeah, 10 seconds. How many, we do this drill in here. I have these, the boxes are actually right next to me. They're, they're about two and a half inches. And I did this with some of my varsity players were over here the other day training. And they have to jump. It's real simple, like pogos on and off as fast as they can. I give them seven seconds. Who can get the most? Mm. And oh my gosh, they they go at let's go one more time. I get you. And they <laughs> want to do it again. And it's just going on. And then that's our linear work. All right. And then when we stand on top of it and they go on and off, rattling it, that's our ladder. We do the same thing, seven seconds. Highest I had ever gotten was 21 seconds. Well, I had two kids break it. One of them got 23, one got 22. Wow. But they went after it. Like they were going and they were good athletes. And, but man, it was fun. You know, it was, they, they kind of bragging rights on a little simple drill with a two inch box. They were, they were kind of uh, going after each other after. <laughs> and it's just, that's what it's all. It was fun. It was play, but I was getting exactly what I wanted that reactive ground contact, you know? So it was great. Yeah. You said that making a, making it a competition early in this podcast. And I love how you've, you've kept going back to that and, and, and just seeing how that unfolds through all the elements of training and then with the, you know, even the basic as a simple little drill, you know, little even yeah. pogos up on and off a box. As soon as you make it a competition, it's like, yeah, everything, yeah. everything gets escalated. Well, <laughs> speaking of which, so a competition, I wanted to close this out, Lee. I know, you know, I, I, I love the process of long-term development, youth sports to high school to college. And I think... If people listening, you know, a lot of people have kids or will have kids. And so, you know, this is something that to me, it doesn't necessarily plug right into the session that you are doing with the athletes in front of you, but it's everything that encapsulates it, which is, you know, youth sports to middle school to high school. And I know you've been really speaking on like the travel ball epidemic and trying to think of more even than just saying, oh, this is, you know, hurting kids the way this is structured, having something that can change it. And so I would just love if you could just 
briefly touch on that and how to capture the pure form of competition as you've spoken of so much to this podcast. Uh, just a little bit of your thoughts on that yeah. before we get out of well, here. Well, thank you for allowing me to show because this is a real passion of mine. And it has been for 20 plus years. But over the last year, I've really found it because I was getting tired of people saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cute, Lee. You go on with that. But I really have been almost obnoxious because I felt like I had to get people emotional and almost mad at me. And several did, but most of those people kind of turned the corner when they really saw what I was looking at because I was the squeaky wheel that was making them say, oh, yeah, there was like three fights at our last AAU kids and my my kid was frightened at that. But now they're starting to see what I'm talking about. It's a pretty angry, violent environment right now overall. there's I know there's good times, but so here's my here's my thoughts on this. The ultimate goal as a parent is I want my kid to be happy, healthy. I want him to improve. I want him to develop skill-wise and tactically. So I want him to improve. I don't care the sport. You can plug the sport in. I want him to get better at it. We currently think because the loudest, noisiest people are the AAU organizers because they make a lot of money off it. And so they are preaching, you got to do AAU, you got to be on these travel teams, you got to pay in these tournaments, you got to do this and that. Well, I'm sitting here saying, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because these kids are not getting better. They're just spending a lot of money. And some of the kids don't even get a lot of playing time, you know, because they have these nine-year-old elite travel teams where everything's elite yeah (laughs) everything's elite right and not every kid gets to play because the coach wants to win rather than develop so my model is we have there's no reason we can't have competitions with small-sided games such as three on three or maybe soccer four on four and we have small fields and we we create environments where they're fairly local. Um, we stay local so that parents aren't spending, you know, five to ten thousand dollars over the course of six to seven months of all this travel and expenses. Keep it local. We want to have uh, competitions that are one day, so parents don't have to leave Friday night, get in a hotel, play an eight o'clock game, stay there all day, then play the Sunday, you know, consolation game, and then drive home. So they played five, six games in a weekend. They're exhausted. Everybody's mad. We don't need that. That does, That's not developmentally sound. And we would never do that in any other aspect, but we accept it in youth sports. So we go one game, We excuse me, one day, uh, two games. And this would be more along the line of basketball, you know, even soccer to a degree. Certain games might be a little different. But if we can start like three-on-three tournaments where a lot of times games are like 10 to 15 minutes long, because they're very fast paced, there's different rules for a regular three and three. And then you you sit and then the other teams play, you come back and you play again and and you know, stuff like that. And then you have competitions at the end. And what I would like to do, rather than having these tournaments where there's hundreds of teams, you get like 16 teams and you play. Each team plays twice, rest, and then at the end you have a two-minute competition game, a two-minute tournament. Your team versus my team, winner goes home, or uh, winner stays, loser goes home. And then you play, and they're only two-minute games, and they are fun. We've done these before, and the parents love it. The other part to this, Joel, that, that I don't think organizers do at all, and this is why there's so many problems. When I was doing these things in Indiana with our little local stuff, I would talk to the parents, and I'd say, this 
is for the kid. You're a guest. If you yell, if I hear you cursing, you're gone. You're, this is your warning. You're not going to get another one. Don't take your kid's moment. Let them play. And I would announce it. And if it happened, I'd go talk to the parent. And some of the parents would go, my fault. I apologize. It's okay. Don't let it happen again as long as you got it. And then the kids relax. The coaches mm-hmm. and the officials relax. And then the other part was it. I said, we don't always need officials because officials cost money. And if we're trying to save money, there's no reason I can't stand on the sideline and my coach that I'm going again does it. And the kids can call an out of bounds. Like if the ball goes out mm-hmm. of bounds on somebody, hey, it's out on you. That's what we do every day at recess and at playground pickup games. And make it more about the experience of playing. And then lastly, all the money goes to that school or facility, not the organizers. Because what happens is when the organizers want to make money, the schools know that. So they jack their rental prices up. So then the organizers have to raise their prices. And then it costs $20 per parent to get into a game. My my process was, let's say we're going to charge $200 or less per team come in and play. All the money goes to the school to help their athletics, to help everything. The parents can get in for under $5. They can come in and watch. And the concession goes to the school. So it's actually helping these schools and these facilities have fun. And coaches aren't making the money. Organizers aren't making the money. The schools are that that are willing to open up their schools. Now you have schools that are more willing to be a part of this solution of helping youth sports rather than keeping this this kind of crazy, angry model that we currently have. And and it worked. It's just that people are like, ah, yeah, that's no, not going to work. We have to, like, because you don't want to try it. That's why it's not working for you. Mm-hmm. But if you're willing to try it, everybody just starts to relax. And we realize, hey, it's about the kid anyway. They're going to be a pro. You're going to mm-hmm. know it, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to know that yep. anyway. Not, you know, a, a weekend tournament doesn't determine that or not. It's, that's already there. So, so in a nutshell, that's kind of what it is. And that's what we're trying to promote and get people to understand. Let's relax. This is youth sports and allow sampling, allow sampling of other sports. Don't just don't play 12 months a year of one sport, you know, get them, get them in other sports. Yeah. I think the the theme of that too fits with everything we've been saying, which is it's yeah. fun games and community and the games are exposure, like the games that you can you do. You are exposed to all sorts of situations and skills, not just like in a smaller sided game. So it's yeah. like, it's kind of encapsulating everything we've talked about thus far. It's just now with yeah, how do you organize that in the community? And yep. I just think that's really powerful. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Awesomely. Well, Hey, thank you so much, man. It's, Awesome talking to you. I'm so excited for my next coaching season and just obviously normal performance training as well. You give me so many great ideas. Super inspiring to chat with you. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, uh, where can people find more about you, th- that league you're talking about as well as just other information? Today? Oh, yeah. That, thank you. Yeah. If they go to basketball game model, basketballgamemodel.com, you can find it there. Or if they go to leadpath.com, they can use that's kind of like the mothership of all our stuff and they can find stuff there and uh and you know i'm pretty active at leafpath on, on any social just trying to share ideas but but yeah that would be where they could find stuff and i appreciate it you're welcome well thank you again lee really great thanks you all.
Thanks for listening. Appreciate you being here and we'll see you next week.